Welcome back to the Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. Uh, I have a very special guest with me today to open the show. That's right. It is Paul Prescott, former state Senate candidate in Pennsylvania, former public school teacher, uh, new uh, employee of Teamsters for a Democratic Union, and of course, former co-host of this very show, which actually, come to think of it, makes you a not very special guest at all. So I take back that part. Hi, Paul. How are you? <laughs> Good. I love to be not special. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your new gig over at Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Uh, what's the Teamster news? What should we be looking out for? Your labor, Paul? Give us give us the details. Yeah. So, I mean, briefly, Teamsters for a Democratic Union is a national caucus in the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, um, you know, essentially just fighting to make the union stronger. Um, this is an interesting moment where we have a new reform slate that is in power at the Teamsters at the national level. And TDU was a big part of that coalition. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting moment. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities the big thing coming this next year, um, August 1st, 2023, the contract at UPS expires. Um, UPS is the largest private sector employer in this country. Um, they over 300,000 Teamsters. I don't think I have to tell listeners, you know, um, how strategic of a sector this is. So that is, you know, going to be a big priority over this next year. And I think, um, you know, a big victory at UPS could really set the tone, uh, not just for workers in this company, but really across the whole country. Uh, Paul, I think when you were on the Jackman show, when you were co-hosting, you uh, you had already sprinkled sort of these crumbs of watching out for the UPS contract. So everybody, obviously, keep an eye on it. Uh, we'll have Paul back uh, to discuss those developments when they when they roll around. Uh, but Paul. Uh, Obviously had to have you back today because, number one, you have a new article in Jacobin about the rise and fall of the manufacturing sector and specifically how that connects to the black middle class. Uh, And we're going to get into that in a second. But I also wanted you to open the show with me today because we haven't gotten a chance to sit down and talk about news and politics for a while. Uh, There was an article that Kale actually sent to me last week, and I thought of you immediately. It is in 538, and it's titled, Why Democratic appeals to the working class are unlikely to work. All right. So obviously, I know you're going to have thoughts about this. Uh, The reason why I wanted to bring you on is not just because you're somebody who studies labor and studies the working class. uh, But as I think lots of our viewers know, you yourself ran for office on a working class platform. And uh, there's we have an entire video about that on the channel. So if people are interested in the kind of postmortem of your campaign, uh, definitely go check that out. We can get into a little bit of that later. Uh, but but I want to dive into this article, right? So um, obviously, there's been a lot of talk going on about the Democrats kind of losing working class voters. We've talked about this on the show before. This is basically a decades long process that I think is really starting to intensify. And uh, as a result, you now have um, not just people on the left, but Democratic, you know, mainstream Democratic uh, strategists and commentators 
also now starting to say, what can we do about this? The Democratic Party is losing its working class base. Uh, this is having a huge toll on elections nationwide. We need to do something to reverse this trend. So along comes this 538 article, and the author basically argues uh, two pieces, two, two, two things, and I'll just lay that out quickly for people who haven't seen the article yet. So she argues that, number one, when these strategists and when people basically say that Democrats should uh, really try to make economic bread and butter appeals to working class people to try to win these voters back, this author says, when you say that, you're actually just talking about white working class voters. So that's the first part of her argument. The second part, and I, I know you're already getting excited. Uh, the second part is that she then says that this is a fool's errand. Trying to appeal to the white working class is a fool's errand because um, she doesn't say this as explicitly as like some liberal commentators do. But she basically says the white working class is too racist or too attached to kind of cultural values and, you know, racial resentments to vote for Democrats ever again, basically. Uh, so, so you know, the gist is that she's saying it's it's not a worthwhile project to try to put forth a strong economic bread and butter platform. She writes in her piece, these messages are unlikely to work on their own because the dividing line in the American electorate is not economics, it's race and culture. All right. So I have a few thoughts, of course, um, but I I'm going to open it up to you, Paul, because like I said, uh, not only are you somebody who, you know, follows this issue, who who knows a lot about labor and about, uh, you know, economics and the working class, uh, but you are a former politician yourself. So, uh, Paul, is is the dividing line in America culture and race and, and is economics doomed to fail? <laughs> Wow. Where, where to start? Um, I guess I'll start by saying, you know, these appeals are not likely to work. It'd be nice if we tried. How about we try them first? Um, that, that would be a good place to start. Um, and this article, I mean, it's really confused and they, they don't ever land in this article on a solution or like a proposed idea. Of what to, like they don't even say we actually should double down on appealing to race and culture. They just kind of leave it at, at nothing. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I think a really simple question should be asked by anyone reading this article of, is, you know, if Democrats used to win working class voters. Why was that? What were they doing to do that? And I think there'd be a huge answer right in the center saying, well, there was New Deal policies and then there wasn't. Um, and what's interesting about that, too, is, you know, thinking about the New Deal coalition, um, you know, it, it united uh, many different ethnicities and races and not just purely white and black, but even different white ethnic communities where those differences among white ethnics used to matter, I think, a lot more than mm -hmm. they do today. Um, and that they were united around the New Deal coalition. So that I mean, that's a clear thing right there. And also, I think even looking at, you know, again, going back to Bernie Sanders, no, he didn't win the Democratic primary in 2016 or 2020, but um, he really did extremely well working class voters. I mean, yeah. certain areas like West Virginia in the Midwest. Um, and, you know, as I always point out, he was second best among black voters in 2020, but also working class white voters. So, I mean, these, mm -hmm. these are very clear signs that this is, this worked. Um, and I think also forgetting that a big part of Donald Trump's message, especially in 2016, along with, you know, the racist um, and, and xenophobic stuff was also, you know, anti-NAFTA, um, you know, yeah. pro reindustrializing, talking about jobs. I think that was a big draw for many uh, white voters. So definitely, um, maybe I'll just start there. I, yeah, 
you know. To- yeah. Um, on that last point, I'm sure you've seen there's like some great CNN footage of them just juxtaposing Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump talking about trade. And they really do sound the same. And I think, you know, when CNN ran this clip, their their kind of angle was like, oh, like these two like outsider fringy populists. Um, but obviously watching it from the perspective of, you know, somebody who's interested in deindustrialization and how that's affected the manufacturing sector and by extension, the American working class, like it was really interesting to see. Donald Trump talking about trade in that way. Uh, so, right. so yeah, and there's that. Another thing too, and this is a really just consistent mistake people continue to make it is overstating the amount of working class support Trump mm-hmm. had. Mm-hmm. It was there. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but when you really look at the hard data, it shows that, I mean, he was carried over the top by more affluent upper middle-class people. Right. I mean, a lot of people traditionally in the Republican party base. Um, so again, I don't want to deny the working class support. Um, and as we, we can talk about a little bit more, even support among different races as well. Right. But um, I think people overstate it and they paint a picture where it was like, it was just like full on working class revolt and that's his entire base. And that really just misses the point. And, you know, I think the bigger story in American politics is just how working class people have dropped out from electoral right. politics um, and this is of all races. I think that's really the the bigger story we have to deal with. Right. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I mean, it, it, it's it's uh, you know, I think I think it should be said that when we talk about working class voters abandoning the Democratic Party, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are voting Republican. Although, of course, many of them are. Uh, but like you just said, it a lot of it is just people dropping out of the political process entirely. And in some ways that's like a worse thing because it's, it, I mean, it's very, very difficult to re-engage people once they drop out of the process. Uh, and, you know, on your point, uh, to your point about it happening with workers of all races, like I want to go to this part in the article where, you know, she, she sort of uh, makes the case that um, appealing, making broad economic bread and butter appeals is trying to win over specifically the white working class. Like that is a claim that she makes in the article. And I, I obviously have a bone to pick with that. I, I mean, you know, back when you were on the show, we would talk about this all the time. I think that it, it cannot be said enough. Economic bread and butter appeals don't just work or they... I, I think that it's completely disingenuous to sort of act like that's a dog whistle to only white workers. Um, I think that we have mountains of evidence that show that uh, Latino, Asian, black workers all respond to this type of messaging. Uh, again, it's not that it's a home run every time, because obviously messaging isn't like the only thing that matters in a campaign. Uh, but we we have a lot of evidence to support that, like basically every every racial group uh, of working class ro- voters, you know, prioritizes these economic issues and responds to them in messaging as well. And so, you know, maybe to go to your campaign, uh, you know, I like, I don't know, you, I, I know, again, like I said, there's an entire video about this. Yeah. So you don't have to get too into the weeds. Uh, but, you know, part of your campaign was kind of centering these sort of pro working class economic issues. So maybe say a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, definitely. And well, I'll start by saying two things. One of them is, you know, I lost my election, so people can uh, take whatever I say with a, with a grain of salt. But and also the other point is, obviously, some of this is anecdotal. You know, mm-hmm. was, you know, I, to your surprise, I know I, I did not interview every single black person in Philadelphia. So <laughs> right. I'm talking kind you of tried. anecdotally here, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, and you know, I like I talked about in the video, the district I um, ran in and I live in is, is majority working class um, mm-hmm. black communities and. 
you know, I found on the doors overwhelmingly um, the response to the message around union jobs, things like trade schools, um, career technical education, things like that. I I just found way disproportionately black voters responded much more enthusiastically than um, white voters. Um, And it wasn't that white voters were against this message, but I found the response was more palpable and, and powerful in black communities. And again, I don't think it should be rocket science that, you know, communities that are disproportionately dealing, dealing with poverty and disinvestment, um, these issues are going to to resonate more. And even I found that when voters would see, you know, in our, our um, election literature, seeing the union endorsements, I would often mm-hmm. get more enthusiasm, I would find, from, from Black working people than others. Um, so, you know, just speaking anecdotally, that definitely rung true and it, and it shouldn't really surprise people um, right. about why that would. I mean, think about the the data. I mean, historically in this country, all the way up to now, often the black unemployment rate is double the white unemployment rate. Um, and in certain areas, it might be even triple or quadruple. So, of course, um, people are going to be very concerned about um, jobs and poverty in a situation like that. I think actually that is like the perfect note uh, to transition to talking about your article. Uh, As I mentioned, you have a new article in Jacobin uh, that looks at the rise and fall of the manufacturing sector in the U.S. Uh, You covered a study that recently came out um, on on this very topic. Uh, So so basically, uh, okay. so first, uh, also sort of related to the article and related to race, I do feel like I have to say, you know, when we talk about uh, the manufacturing sector in the U.S., I think oftentimes people sort of across the political spectrum uh, just assume that this uh, sector is populated like exclusively by, quote, white guys in hard hats. Right. Like I hear that like all the time. Um, now, the study in the piece or the, the, the study that you cover in your piece Uh, I think in a way challenges that characterization by talking about how the manufacturing sector actually played a very crucial role in the creation of a black middle class in the U.S. Uh, So so maybe first just take us through that. Uh, How did the manufacturing sector kind of give rise to, uh, you know, generation of economic security for, uh, you know, middle class black families? Yeah. um, And I'll start maybe a slightly pedantic point, but um, just to be clear on terminology and I well, how I interpret the use of the term middle class in this context. I know you and mm-hmm. Kale have had good conversations on this term. I think in this context, I mean, I look at this as more as meaning a, a relatively more stable portion of yeah. the work, working class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so people who can, uh, you know, have decent benefits, can afford to retire, can reasonably expect their kids can maybe go to college. Um, so that's, I think, when we talk about middle class in this context, I like to think of it of, of a more stable part of the working class. Um, but, you know, think about the story we're often told about deindustrialization, um, even by people who I think are sincerely pro-labor and are not, you know, total race reductionists. I think the story is kind of more like, you know, this period right before and after World War II, mostly white men got access to these, you know, good manufacturing union jobs. They were able to attain a stable middle-class lifestyle. And it was a white working class that was devastated by, deindustrialization by bad trade deals like NAFTA. And so, you know, the loss of these good private sector union jobs is primarily a story about white workers. And now we're seeing that play out, you know, in white working class people being attracted to populism. And so that's a story I think we're often told and many parts of it are true, um, but I think it's very incomplete and it, it leaves us with a really distorted 
overall picture of what's happened in this country over the past uh, 45, 50 years. Um, so this study I looked at is called the unmaking of the black blue collar middle class. And it, it, in short, it shows that there was in fact a significant black middle class that was created from these kinds of unionized manufacturing jobs. Um, most clear example of this was in the auto industry, and that's what I um, look at the most, but also happened in steel, mm -hmm. uh, consumer electronics, the rubber industry, and more. And, you know, and therefore, I think, and not that this is a competition, but if anything, deindustrialization, I think, has caused even more pain in working class black communities. It's, it's even more of a pressing issue in black communities. Um, and so, you know, the, to get into some of the details of how this emerged, you know, the timing of this with blue collar black workers, I think, was different than white workers. Um, and in many ways, it was a fortunate piece of timing where the civil rights movement achieved major gains um, in the early and mid 1960s, right at the same time where there was still strong economic growth and many of these industries um, were expanding. And so and I think it's important to remember that, you know, black employment in these industries and membership in these unions it did not just start in the 1960s. Um, you know, when the CIO emerged in the 1930s, black workers gained a foothold in many of those industries and those unions. Um, during World War II, you, we had A. Philip Randolph's March on Washington movement, which was pushing for black workers in the wartime industries. He had some success in achieving that. But you have a few um, key factors coming together in the 1960s. Um, you have a strong civil rights movement allied with labor, they pushed Kennedy uh, first to sign things like Plans for Progress, which um, regulated employment discrimination with uh, uh, federal contractors. So by the time of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, the so-called, what they called the big three auto companies, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler, signed on to this Plans for Progress, this commitment to hire more black workers. Um, you have the creation of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in 1965. This was another civil rights gain, and this strengthens the kind of oversight. And it really makes a difference in allowing more black workers access to these industries. It also helped that the auto industry was growing and needed more workers. You also had the timing of a lot of white workers who maybe were hired in the 30s and 40s were retiring at the time anyway. So mm -hmm. there's this need there's a powerful civil rights movement. There's legislation to enforce this. All these things come together. And so by 1966, you have over 100,000 black workers in the auto industry, in the auto workers union. And so overwhelmingly, these are people without a high school education, but these are jobs with good wages, great benefit packages. Um, these people could expect, even though they did not have a college education, they could reasonably expect that their child could go to college and, and presumably make more money than they did. And so, um, you know, even though you have deindustrialization is already well in its way by the 1970s, um, actually way before that, you know, this trend with black workers continues even into the 1980s, the early 80s. And so contrary to all these really stupid stereotypes about industrial workers being white men, Mm -hmm. By the early 80s, you actually had black workers overrepresented in the union movement. And mm -hmm. so by the time of the early 80s, you know, they were 9% of the labor force, but almost 14% um, of unionized workers. Um, so that's kind of what this story, you know, tells and what, what this study gets into. And one thing that's kind of striking for me looking at this is, for me, it really validates the perspective of civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., Philip, A. Philip Randolph, Barry Rustin, who believed that 
after getting civil rights legislation, the immediate next task was to ensure good employment for African-Americans or else the civil rights legislation would be largely meaningless. Um, right. you know, they needed to continue to grow the ranks of black workers in organized labor. And I think the historical record all the way up to now shows that, you know, whatever black middle class we have built in this country, you know, public and private sector unions have been central to that. Yeah, I think that all also underscores a point that people like Toure Reed and, you know, Judith Stein and others have made, which is that the anti-discrimination legislation obviously is a very central and, and key component of helping black workers enter, you know, the middle class or, you know, kind of a floor of economic stability. Uh, but at the same time, that Unless that happens in conjunction with a growing economy and a growing, you know, either manufacturing sector, or whatever sector is providing these decent jobs, it's like not going to do much. Uh, so maybe, I mean, maybe on that note, like talk a little bit now about what happened after. How did deindustrialization change the fortunes of, you know, this rising black middle class? Yeah. And, and I guess, I mean, part of it is a story of how this post-war prosperity, you know, um, came undone. And I think there were many factors that led to the post-war growth um, and prosperity for many working people. Strong labor movement certainly was part of it. New Deal, things like that were part of it. But I think the other factor was that a lot of our industrial competitors were just flattened and destroyed mm -hmm. after World War II. And U.S. industry did not really have much strong competition. But that situation cannot last forever. And as long as the major investment decisions were in the hands of capital, these gains of the post-war period were, were going to be tentative and I think precarious. And so if we look at the auto industry again, um, it was actually the rise of the Japanese auto industry that really eroded these gains for blue collar black workers. Um, and really I should add, not just the rise of the Japanese auto industry, but the response by US companies as well. Right. And so, you know, Japanese auto plants, you know, they emerge more productive, more profitable. So what do US companies do? They cut from the workforce, they offshore, they attack unions. And, you know, this begins a vicious cycle that hurts all workers, but black workers bear the brunt of it. Um, mm -hmm. And what's even worse is that when Japanese plants located to the United States, they deliberately stayed away from urban centers with high black populations. And as even, you know, you can see in their company records, they actually deliberately stayed away from black workers due to certain racial stereotypes that they had. Mm -hmm. So, you know, black workers cannot even... Um, in large part, take advantage of some of the new opportunities from these Japanese transplants. Right. And so, you know, this process begins in the 1980s, and it's been a downward slide ever since. Um, to, to put some figures to this, you know, in 2009, Black workers had less than 60,000 jobs in the auto industry. So this is just 33% of their peak level of employment in the 1970s. Um, and this really happens across the board in manufacturing because, you know, it wasn't just an auto, you know, the steel industry was one of the largest employers of black male manufacturing workers. Um, so overall, the percentage of black workers in manufacturing was at 23% in 1979. By 2007, it was less than 10%. So this is a dramatic, you know, drop off on um, what happens with these unionized workers. And I think we have a graphic from the study that also kind of illustrates this. You know, you can see starting in 1979, just a decline uh, of black manufacturing workers, but also union membership. Um, what's also striking here is you look at this compared to white workers, and you actually see they're very close throughout this whole um, time period, both mm -hmm. in percentage of workers in manufacturing 
and union membership. And I think, in fact, African-Americans are, are slightly higher at, in some areas in union membership. Um, so, again, this is clearly affecting the whole working class. But I think black workers, it's um, a, it's a harder it's hitting harder for for them. Um, yeah. And I think that the part of the story, too, is not just, you know, international competition and things like that. But I think the failure of things like the freedom budget, which mm-hmm. civil rights leaders were pushing, which called for full employment. And what was key about that was that this was calling for the government to take ownership of this and, you know, state-led investment in employment. Because mm-hmm. what this story shows is that, um, you know, once the private sector was not going to be providing these jobs and was cutting and offshoring, if the government is not stepping in, uh, then no one will. And so I think the failure of the freedom budget and really the failure of a social democratic tendency in U.S. politics is also part of why we've, we've seen this, you know, decline over the years. And what has replaced these these good paying jobs? I mean, really nothing except mass incarceration, unemployment, low wage service sector jobs. And now, you know, in many working class black communities, if you don't or if you aren't able to get into the public sector, um, you know, absent that, there's really not many good options for you. And that's kind of where, where we're at today. Right. So that, I guess, of course, leads us to the question of like, what can we do about this? And I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit uh, because I I know that somebody I know that there are people out there who would say something like, well, you know, you make a perfectly fine case for how the manufacturing sector and, uh, you know, specifically unionized manufacturing jobs helped uh, help create this black middle class. Uh, but those jobs are gone. They're never coming back. We're not going to reshore manufacturing. Uh, what we should be doing is focusing on making these bad jobs, you know, care work, service work. We need to make these jobs better. We're not going to bring back manufacturing. And in fact, to try to bring back manufacturing again is just a kind of misguided nostalgia for, you know, a, a white or whatever working class that doesn't exist any longer. So, you know, the question for you, Paul is uh, like the large question is like, is there a viable industrial policy that the U.S. can undertake today? And uh, like, how do we make jobs good again? Yeah, um, well, it's, it definitely is a kind of both and thing. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely, we need to make the bad jobs good. Right. You know, we should try to be organizing the service sector. But I think we, we have to think about industrial policy and bringing back manufacturing blue collar work. But of course, it's not going to look the same. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be the same exact industries in the same way. Um, so, you know, things thinking about like a worker centered Green New Deal, which covers all elements of, of um, infrastructure, you know, public transit expansion. You need someone to build that um, retrofitting buildings, um, as well as things like nuclear energy, um, solar, winds, uh, you know, that, that are union jobs. So that, that really, to me, is an industrial policy. I think Green New Deal done in a way that centers workers is part of an industrial policy. Um, there's also our basic infrastructure. You know, I I want to be in a world eventually where we are like 100% done with cars. But but while we do have cars, like our roads should not have craters in them like mm-hmm. they do in Philadelphia. Um, our bridges, I mean, Pennsylvania, um, you know, about a year ago, we had a bridge collapse in near Pittsburgh. Um, so maintenance of basic infrastructure is is part of this too. Um, and I think, you know, uh, what electric vehicles, um, electric uh, uh, vehicle batteries. I mean, these are the kinds of things like manufacturing does not mean, you know, let's go back to just making gas powered cars again and right. things like that. I think there's all kinds of things that that fall under that umbrella. And I think along with that fighting for things like, you know, 
funding our, our trade schools, career te technical education programs within public schools. You know, in most schools and in, in urban areas, these programs have been cut. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've talked about this before. If you are a working class student who cannot afford to go to college or does not want to, you know, if you had a trade school option that would give you a path to a good, uh, sustainable life. And if you cut that off and you're cutting college off at the same time, you really don't have many options. So, you know, fighting for that kind of public school funding that where every school can have a good career technical education program as part of it. I think these are the things we should be thinking about. And these are things that, you know, uh, disproportionately benefit black workers. And I think that are on black voters' minds mm -hmm. in, in very real ways. Yeah. Uh, not to, I, I, I'm a little nervous about invoking this word because like it gets a bad rap for good reason, but what you're describing kind of almost sounds like it might have bipartisan appeal too. Just, just putting that out there. Yeah. I mean, possibly, I mean, possibly. It, it started, yeah. I'm still waiting to see these, uh, so-called pro-working class Republicans right, yeah. actually get on board. I mean, you see it in certain local areas, you know, and, mm -hmm. In, in my area, you will often see like suburban counties, building trades unions supporting Republicans when they're the only game in town because, you know, often enough a Republican will support a certain infrastructure thing. So I think there's right. there's opportunities. But um, but I think bipartisan in the sense of in terms of ordinary voters. Right. Yeah, kinds of exactly. That would have, you know, 70, 80 percent support. Um, right. And, you know, this is important. I mean, thinking about where the Democratic Party is heading, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's like, um, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about migration of, of Latino voters mm -hmm. to Republicans. Same thing is happening with black voters, not to be clear, it's not happening in the same way. And I, I don't think that in 10 years, you're going to have like most black voters voting Republican. I don't <laughs> right. think that's ever going to happen. But the fact that it's happening at all, mm -hmm. in this age where Democrats are talking about race all the time, and they're describing Republicans as racist all the time really should mm -hmm. raise some eyebrows about what's going on here. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I got to pull this clip up again, but you, you have people like Joanne Reed who criticizing, you know, the basic infrastructure bill on the basis that th these are jobs for just white men. And what's kind of incredible about this is someone like Joanne Reed uh, rarely will criticize the Biden administration. So when they do, it's kind of a big deal. And the thing she chooses to criticize is probably like one of the few fairly decent proposals they had around an infrastructure bill. But this mindset is just, it's just very out of step with black voters. So, you know, we might want to take a listen to that now. Let's take a look. Let me, let me ask you this question. Do you think it was a mistake looking back? Because, you know, the, 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 the infrastructure bill um, that was passed was cleaved apart from what's now being called build back better. And in a sense, it's a bill that's like a white guy employment act, right? There's going to be a lot of working class men that are going to get employed by that bill, but that's the very cohort that is much more likely to reward Republicans for that. That's who they vote for. Most, you know, working class white guys vote Republican. Um, I yeah. just want, I just want to say what that, that clip came out like last year, I think. Right. And I, I feel like I sent it to you and I was like, Joanne Reed made this just to troll you. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, it was one of the few times I was like sympathetic for people to judge but yeah, I mean, this is just like incredibly wrongheaded thinking. And also, and I, I know I've said this before on this show, you know, thinking about the building trades, again, there's no denying that there has been, a, you know, a history of exclusion, discrimination mm -hmm. in the trades. Um, but two things I want to say about this is, 
you know, you, you got to look at the region because, I mean, many cities, you look around the building trade, you're going to see a lot of black and brown workers who yeah. are there who would benefit a lot from bills like an infrastructure bill. But also the second point of that is if we want to remedy the situation, you got to create more jobs and you yeah. got to create a need to expand um, these apprenticeship programs. I mean, going back to what happened, what I kind of described with the auto industry happening, it only, you know, black workers only got that opportunity because the industry was expanding mm-hmm. and there were just more jobs. Like mm-hmm. they needed to hire more people. Um, right. And if there's ever a situation where you do not need to hire more people and you're cutting back, um, you know, that we're, we're not going to solve this problem of, you know, um, not enough workers of color in the trade. So <laughs> right. really the only way to remedy that is an infrastructure bill that, you know, would create the need for more work. And so, you know, what we should criticize from the Biden bill is it wasn't nearly big enough. You know, it did not was not ambitious enough really for for that task. Right. All right. Well, uh, Paul, uh, we will link your article below. Again, that is out in Jacobin. Um, Good to see you. Labor Paul, as always, we will see you soon, I'm sure. Thanks for being here. Great to be back. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in July and get your first month free. This month's selections are... Red Valkyries, Feminist Lessons from Five Revolutionary Women by Kristen Godsey, a history of five prominent socialist women active in the 19th and 20th centuries in Eastern Europe. Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation by Paris Marx, an expose of the problems with Silicon Valley's visions of the future. Against Borders, The Case for Abolition by Gracie May Bradley and Luke de Nerona, a manifesto for why we need to get rid of borders. And The Poverty of Ethics by Anat Matar, an analysis of why the left should reclaim ethics and morality for itself. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Since the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade last month, more and more businesses have publicly asserted their support for reproductive rights, which of course means that Republicans are once again ramping up their battle against so-called woke capitalism. As we know, the self-styled populist wing of the GOP has been on this warpath for a while. Just last week, Reuters reported that there are now 44 bills or laws across 17 red states that seek to, quote, punish Wall Street for taking stances on gun control, climate change, diversity, and other social issues in a warning for companies that have waded into fractious social debates. For instance, last year, the Texas state legislature passed a law barring any business that, quote, boycotts energy companies or, quote, discriminates against the firearms industry from doing new business with the state. That law has already shut banks like Chase, Goldman Sachs, and Bank of America out of the state's municipal bond market. Likewise, back in April, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill stripping Disney of its self-governing status after the company opposed the state legislature's controversial don't-say-gay law. More recently, Marco Rubio has proposed legislation to prevent companies who cover the costs of abortion travel or gender-affirming care for employees from deducting those expenses from their taxes. In other words, some of the leading figures of the party of big business are increasingly butting heads with the companies they were once so cozy with. Now, of course, the Republicans' sudden interest in curtailing corporate power is just a culture war tantrum. 
The GOP might not like corporations flying rainbow flags or subsidizing employee abortions, but they're still the exact same party that's desperate to slash corporate taxes, undermine any worker protections or environmental regulations that interfere with profit, and enable the business sector to exert massive influence over politics. So the Republicans who want to indulge their new anti-corporate streak now find themselves in the awkward position of occasionally sounding like they write for Jacobin. For instance, West Virginia's Republican treasurer, Riley Moore, recently complained of corporations, quote, they're using the power of their capital to push their ideas and ideology down onto the rest of us. He's not wrong, but unfortunately for Moore and his party, they've spent approximately a century bulldozing the way for businesses to do exactly that. Now, all that said, at this point, we really shouldn't be too surprised by Republican hypocrisy and dishonesty. After all, we know this is just how they operate. The bigger problem right now is that while Republicans are making a show of trying to undermine the power of the business sector, no matter how ridiculous or disingenuous their motivations may be, on the other side of the aisle, Democrats are doing essentially nothing to rein in corporations. If you ask me, this is a huge political mistake, not least because polling over the last few years has indicated that the American public is increasingly distrustful of big business and immense corporate power. According to Gallup, around 60% of respondents have consistently expressed dissatisfaction with the size and influence of major corporations in the U.S. almost every year since 2010. Likewise, a 2017 survey of 10,000 respondents found that almost two-thirds said they distrusted the Fortune 500 and that 85% of Democrats, along with the somewhat surprising 72% of Republicans, agreed that companies shared too little of their success with employees. Surveys also consistently find that a majority of Americans believe corporations should pay more in taxes. And according to a CNBC poll from earlier this spring, a clear majority of Americans currently say that the ongoing problem of inflation is at least partly the result of corporations taking advantage of the pandemic to pad their profit margins. This is all to say that the Republicans actually seem to be picking a pretty good time to accelerate their attack on so-called woke capitalism. In fact, a recent Pew Research report found that since 2019, the share of Republican voters who say large corporations have a positive impact on the way things are going in the U.S. has declined 24 percentage points from 54 percent to 30 percent. This makes me wonder why the Democratic Party isn't doing more at the moment to go after big business. While a Democratic bill to crack down on price gouging did recently pass in the House, it's safe to say that it'll probably wither in the Senate without so much as a peep from the party leadership. Similarly, back in March, Bernie Sanders introduced a bill to tax large corporations' windfall pandemic profits, but of course, that idea died on the vine as well, thanks to a complete lack of interest from the Democrats. Meanwhile, a few blue state governors, like Gavin Newsom in California, have used the ongoing culture wars as an excuse to appeal to the corporate sector rather than fight it. Newsom and several other Democratic governors are now saying they'll offer new business incentives to corporations that want to relocate to their states from Republican states that ban abortion or pass anti-LGBTQ laws. In a public appeal inviting corporations to set up shop in California, Newsom said, quote, it's a point of pride that we welcome you back. We want to celebrate that we have you back. But make no mistake, when it comes to corporations, leaning into the culture wars is a dead end for the Democrats. It lets Republicans position themselves as the underdogs fighting big business at a moment when the corporate sector is historically unpopular among the public. 
Worse still, it's a distraction from the more fundamental problem, which is that unchecked capitalist power in America continues to warp our democracy and drive economic inequality and will continue to do so no matter how many progressive social causes companies claim to support. To put it another way, over the same period that Democrats and Republicans have been publicly sparring over businesses' stances on abortion and gay rights, those same companies have been raking in record profits and the income gap between CEOs and average workers has continued to widen. And if the Democratic Party lets itself look softer on corporations than Republicans, particularly when inflation continues to outpace wage growth for most workers and gas and food prices remain high, they risk throwing yet more fuel on the ongoing process of class dealignment, where working class voters of all races are increasingly abandoning the party. For some Democratic insiders, of course, this is actually part of the strategy. Politicians like Nancy Pelosi, Pete Buttigieg, and Joe Biden himself have famously welcomed corporate money to fund their election campaigns. But while cozying up to big business might produce some short-term income for Democrats, the long-term effect will be a party that ultimately undermines its own political efficacy by relying on the support of profit-driven corporations whose interests run counter to the interests of the Democratic Party's voter base, which has already expressed overwhelming support for things like a higher minimum wage, paid sick leave and parental leave, and Medicare for all. Whether you call it woke capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, ethical capitalism, or something else entirely, more and more corporations are embracing progressive social causes. Republicans will naturally use this opportunity to score a few culture war points, and Democrats simply have to avoid taking the bait, or they could very well resign themselves to a narrower, more precarious political coalition that's incapable of actual change. As the historian Kim Phillips-Fine wrote earlier this year, Focusing political energy on securing the commitment of a group of business elites would undermine the engagement of a broad democratic base that must be the real basis of substantial reform. To address many of our deepest problems, nothing less than a redistribution of economic and political power will be needed, and it will only be achieved over the opposition of business and the wealthy. So I am now joined by Aziz Rana. Aziz is a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute and professor of law at Cornell University. He's the author of the book, The Two Faces of American Freedom, and he's also currently finishing a book on the history of constitutional veneration. How's it going, Aziz? Great to be here. Thanks so much for for having me on. Happy to have you. Uh, So you make what I think is a fairly straightforward and powerful case in a recent article in Dissent called Left Internationalism in the Heart of Empire, uh, as well as in some earlier pieces uh, regarding how Americans should think about a global working class, our universal political demands, and what present challenges are uh, to achieve them. Um, So could you maybe just start with how Americans broadly have understood internationalism, maybe kind of the dominant mainstream understanding of internationalism, and then contrast that with how the left has understood internationalism and maybe what it should mean now? Sure. Uh, So, you know, for I'd say pretty much the last century, certainly since the 1940s, there's been a pretty clear way that American elites and then the public generally has thought about the American project, which is the American project is essentially grounded in a commitment to liberty and equality, that this means domestically its institutions, whether it's representative institutions or even its system of market capitalism, is generally consistent with just outcomes and the inclusion of all. 
And that means that what the U.S. supports abroad is really the promotion of these bedrock universal commitments. And so its interests are more or less the world's interests. Now, there's a recognition that there's histories of sexism, of racism, of class inequality. But the thought is that this really doesn't go to the heart of the national project. There you know, are problems that the country's in the process of overcoming. And mm-hmm. so when the U.S. pursues various kinds of practices overseas, it's promoting its essence rather than these problematic uh, aspects of it. There's also a recognition that internationally, sometimes the U.S. gets things wrong. So, you know, even disastrously so in the context of Vietnam or the Iraq invasion. But these are exceptions and that by and large, American foreign policy is, you know, is a project that that's aiming at creating a stable, pacific, prosperous world order. And what all of that ends up justifying is a version of what you can think of as liberal internationalism that defines the national security states project. The thought Mm -hmm. is that the U.S., because of this, rightly enjoys international police power, that it has the authority to intervene everywhere around the world, especially when they're hotspots. The thought is that for a stable system of international order, there has to be some dominant state that has the authority to to intercede and maybe even to move inside or outside of the rules to ensure that the rules as a whole are being followed. And that all of this ends up more or less falling to the U.S. and that this is justified. If anything, that suggests that the, the state project and the security state is a kind of agent moving the world in better directions. So that's the basic approach. It's what most people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And there's been a sustained really left critique of it. And the left critique goes something like this, which is, well, at the heart of the security project has been a specific combination of corporate and military elites. And this means that primarily during the Cold War period, but also after the Cold War, that the set of interests that have been promoted have not necessarily been the interests of those that are most marginalized either mm-hmm. elsewhere in terms of what their actual self, the, the actual self-determination of local communities might be, or marginalized communities domestically. And this is why the long history of American primacy, of the quote-unquote American century, has been a history of sustained interventions, coups, assassinations across the world in ways that suggest that rather than rule following, it's really been violence and lawlessness under the guise of rule following that's oftentimes been the product of American action. And that over Mm -hmm. the long run, rather than global prosperity, a lot of what American primacy has ended up promoting is the accumulation of wealth domestically for specific kinds of elites through the benefits of dollar hegemony and American global economic standing, the construction of frameworks in which you have sharp divides between friends and foes, where wealth is accumulated and assets are provided to friends, and then foes find themselves in this kind of either-or world of being immiserated or facing various forms of intervention and overthrow. Mm -hmm. And so the response from left activists, and you can see this within anti-colonial struggles, within um, labor and, um, and radical workers' movements, is that in order for there to be a genuine internationalism that's committed to treating the global commons as a universal resource and redistributing global wealth in ways that are non-exploitative, not grounded in dependency, and organized through true local self-determination, that Americans at home have to really commit to the idea 
that you have an independent foreign policy that's distinct from the objectives of the security state. Mm-hmm. And that this independent foreign policy instead is organized through transnational commitments that link together workers as well as colonized peoples everywhere and see the relevant networks of community as not between, let's say, a worker and a powerful co-national who might share none of the same interests, but as between genuine sites that share common interests right. in constructing an alternative framework. Yeah, I, I, that's... I think very clear, and and I think you make a very strong case for that. A lot of what's so refreshing about your argument is how rooted it is within thinking about power, thinking about capacity of the left, uh, of workers, and um, I guess the organized left, the organized coming through institutions, coming through means that actually can uh, achieve power. Um, You make an interesting point about how the weakness of American left internationalism has to do largely, or at least to some extent, with the collapse of left internationally focused institutions globally, uh, especially in the global south. Can you explain what those institutions were and why we no longer have them? Sure. I mean, so if we just took a snapshot of politics, let's say, in the 1960s and 1970s, One of the things that would feel very different by comparison with the present is that you'd have all of these different liberation and anti-colonial organizations around the world. So you can think of, you know, things like the, the ANC, but well beyond the ANC, that there's just a number of different anti-colonial liberation groups and that these organizations are also connected in various ways to organizations domestically in the U.S. And you can see this as everything from SNCC to the Panthers to a variety of different kinds of left institutions. And then alongside that, you had a first generation of independence leaders. So this is, you know, Nereri in Tanzania, Manly um, in Jamaica and many others that are trying to think about, well, how to house alternative international arrangements. So uh, Adam Getachew is a terrific scholar has written about the new international economic order, which was an effort to think about a multipolar regionalism that reconceived the global commons on grounds that were non-exploitative and that rejected the forms of dependency that marked economic frameworks. And that all of this provided an entrenched framework for having conversations across borders about, you know, how to deal with everything from security uh, hotspots that arise to broader frameworks around, you know, what to make of political economy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, weaker than it was earlier in the century, you still had, uh, you know, a strong foundation of a global labor movement mm-hmm. where very closely tied with these anti-colonial institutions were the institutions of global labor that played a central role in mass organization against uh, imperialism and colonialism, but that also linked together and stitched together folks on grounds of shared class solidarity, and that had its own century-long history that could sort of proceed back even before the Cold War to think about how workers had been connected across different parts of the world in transnational alliances that offered, again, an alternative framework to what the state provided. So that was a very different way of thinking about how the left was situated, and it was organized through a real infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that happens over the last half century is really the sustained pushback against this entire infrastructure Mm -hmm. for reasons that have to do both with the internal weaknesses 
within left um, internationalism, but then also with, you know, the the way in which uh, American and Western security apparatuses engaged. So internal weaknesses. Unfortunately, and this is something that, you know, really you can't romanticize on the left, that many of those first generation independence leaders ended up instituting forms of authoritarianism and plutocracy that really broke um, elements of the kind of liberationist imagination. But alongside this problem of real authoritarianism, once you had independence, independent states, excuse me, across large chunks of Asia and Africa, you also had two other significant things that occurred, which is that the security states project in the U.S., along with its various allies, pretty systematically attempted to destroy these networks. And they did so through assassinations, coups, overthrows, destabilizing non-aligned socialist and left institutions and governments. And that's, I think, a significant way to think about the interventionist politics during the Cold War, and even, frankly, in various ways after the Cold War that marked American foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And then alongside that, you had a basic economic vision that the U.S. and European countries pursued that was the direct opposite of ideas like the new international economic order that was instead really premised on footloose and transnational corporate property rights, the expansion of market access, you know, privatization. And so these kinds of policies of neoliberal austerity effectively went hand in hand with really a dramatic global assault on the institutions of labor and mm-hmm. on sort of the, the, the kind of class foundations of left international politics. So but that by the time we get to 2022, you neither have the old kind of liberation organizations, mm-hmm. many of the states that ended up replacing those organizations in the global south ended up succumbing to various forms of capitalist authoritarianism. You had a sustained security crackdown on the actual actors that were involved in the transnational left. And you had a global economy that was built on undermining effectively the power of global labor so that the infrastructure that fed class alliances, transnational solidarities, and an alternative way of thinking about the global commons was also essentially profoundly compromised. And all that's left really as the folks that engage in conversation when it comes to national security and foreign policy are the security states across these various places, not just in the U.S. and Europe, but also in the global south, which are security states that are oftentimes deeply aligned with the interests of the U.S. or even when they're not deep, not aligned, are themselves variants of an authoritarian capitalism. Mm -hmm. And those are the only relevant agents when it comes to engaging with questions of foreign policy. Yeah. Well, so actually, I think it's worth maybe looking at how uh, left internationalism, kind of left anti-imperialism has thought about these things, uh, the, the people who actually, you know, uh, think about this and, and write about this and, and make these arguments and kind of the general tenor on on the American left, certainly. Um, and I think part of that problem is that a lot of uh, American internationalism and anti-imperialism is kind of just what I call, and I'm picking this up from someone else, I'm stealing someone else's term, but kind of like a vulgar anti-imperialism that uh, it basically just redounds to American empire is big and bad. It's really big. It's everywhere. It has a ton of money. 
And it's really bad. Uh, whenever, you know, something horrible happens in the world, uh, you can probably suspect that it's American empire afoot, that it's American empire is the, the thing that is intervening. And, um, and therefore, that when there are, uh, you know, uh, conflicts or, or revolts around the world, it's all kind of in terms of them versus the American empire. Um, I'm being very general right now, you know, obviously, but I do think there's kind of a, a general thrust um, to a lot of kind of American anti-imperialism that kind of takes this this tone. Um, and obviously, I think, uh, Aziz, you and I would agree with a good deal of, of that, in, insofar as at least the spirit of the fact that, yeah, actually, obviously, uh, the American empire is real, and it does actually have horrible consequences for many, many people around the world, including people domestically. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, I think, Part of the problem with that analysis is it ends up flattening the world and maybe more egregious, it actually ends up hiding or uh, kind of erasing American or not just American, but erasing capitalism, that it it basically gets rid of class distinctions and it sees the world in terms of nations and nation states. Whereas, you know, it's not that America invaded Iraq. It's the military. It's the American military. It's the American political class. It's the American ruling class. Uh, you know, the same thing with what's going on in with the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's not Russia. There is no such thing as Russia. There's the Russian ruling class. There's the Russian political elite that are doing this. And then the Russian working class uh, are suffering under an authoritarian country. Um, and so I think part of this, um, you know, you make you part of what you say in the, the article um, is like, you know, moving away from uh, the left's kind of more moralistic international outlook, um, uh, part of you know, part of doing that, or, or part of the problem, or like why it's difficult to move past kind of this like framework and this kind of moralistic uh, outlook, has to do with the fact that we don't have a political agent. Um, that there's this uh, problem when you see something horrible happen in the world, um, it's very easy to either say you know, you support what, you know, the American government's doing, or you are doing nothing, that there really isn't any alternative, because the left doesn't actually have any agent to actually carry out our politics. Um, could you maybe speak a little bit more about the importance of having an agent, a political agent of the left, and what it would do if we had one? Sure. Do, do you mind if I first just sort of make a point <laughs> about, um, about sort of the the more conventional versions of anti-imperialism that yeah. circulate in American I, politics. I, I threw a lot in there. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we can talk about that first. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, let's discuss a little bit about the effects of not having a coherent agent or really set of like, set of overlapping institutions and infrastructure like yeah. what might have existed half a century ago. Sure. So, you know, American anti-imperialism, the one that you're probably most that folks are most familiar with, in many ways is a product of the end of the Cold War. And it's a product of what I think was and still is an incredibly important intervention that started to develop really in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And basically, with the end of the Cold War, you had folks that were, you know, across the bipartisan political establishment and, and certainly connected to the national security state that were increasingly making the argument that American security politics has no political character. Where, you know, in the during the Cold War period, there's this confrontation between capitalism and socialism. There's this ideological struggle. The thought now was that in a unipolar world, 
the political character of American foreign policy disappears because really all you have is the U.S. as a site of rule protection and the rest of the world as sites of disorder and humanitarian harm. And what the U.S. does when it intervenes, when it engages in airstrikes, when it imposes harsh sanctions, what it's really doing is it's going after rogue states and it's engaged in a kind of moral imperative to protect the world. Now, mm -hmm. the truth is that the post-Cold War era of unipolarity, precisely because this was the underlying agenda effectively behind the national security state, became one of sustained American rule defection. The very rules that it was premised to uphold ended up being rules that it systematically violated based on the idea that it had this exceptional status and that it had no political agenda beyond, you know, protecting people. Mm -hmm. And what I think a lot of anti-imperial analysis was about and has been about is to say, well, wait a second. No, that's not the case. There is a political agenda that drives the national security state's framework And that this idea of moral innocence really is compromised by the sustained forms of lawlessness, rule-breaking, and violence that various forms of American interventionism has imposed. Mm -hmm. That the combination of the security state's you know, overarching grand strategy, whether having access to oil or backing destructive regional allies like Saudi Arabia or Israel in the Middle East or promoting its own market interests, These rebound to sort of to produce negative consequences and feedback loops, both internationally and at home. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is that, you know, in 2022, the structure of American polarity, in large part because of the ways in which the U.S. is engaged in various forms of defection, is really starting to break down. And we're starting to see new kind of incipient forms of of multipolarism. In other words, strong alternative states with their own projects like China, like Russia, that in many ways, you know, are if not full-on competitors, but are also engaging on the world stage. And the natural response, if the analysis that's critical of American empire is a product really of the 90s and the 2000s, is to say, Well, multipolarism is good. We want to not have a unipolar world marked by American primacy. And that's certainly my position as well. I think, you know, an ideal global outcome is a multipolar world in which communities on the ground actually are the ones that are able to make the decisions about how to organize the global commons. Mm -hmm. But the version of multipolarism that we're starting to see emerge right now is not that emancipatory one. It's mm -hmm. a version of multipolarism where you still have this very powerful hegemon in the U.S. that lurches from circumstance to circumstance with no real clarity, with a dysfunctional domestic institutional process marked by growing de-democratization and a global set of policies, aggressive sanctions, militarized confrontation that are really destructive. And you can see this play out in Afghanistan, Libya. Um, you can certainly see it in the response to the pandemic, which is thoroughly scrambled and incoherent. And on the other side, you have these authoritarian capitalist states that are multipolar sites of regional authority, but whose projects are also not emancipatory and are in many ways shaped by the transformations in the global order of the last half century that really undermined the institutions of the left. And in this context, it can be really easy to sort of fall into the tendency 
to just sort of see what the U.S. is doing and criticize it without clearly and comprehensively articulating what Bassam Haddad is called and what I mentioned in the, the piece, an approach that combines anti-authoritarianism and anti-imperialism everywhere, regardless of which site or space it's emanating from. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I guess that gets to the question about, about, you know, why some of the problems we see present when it comes to the American left is a function of not having a clear agent. Should I just talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I, I think just on on your last point, though, uh, about, you know, I, I, I totally agree with what you've just said. I think, and again, I think you make a very compelling case here and in the article. Um, and, and again, I think part of that, you know, what the left should be thinking about is, yes, we're anti-authoritarian, but part of that is insofar as we're trying to select a better enemy to go up against. We'd rather go up against, you know, liberal democratic capitalists rather than authoritarian, brutal dictators that uh, don't have limitations imposed on them. Um, And I think part of the, you know, the challenge of having left internationalism historically has been, you know, again, identifying the fact that in capitalism, the cleavage is between workers and capitalists, the exploited and exploiters. And that's true, whether it's white people, brown people, the US, Europe, anywhere else in the world, the global south, that um, this has been a, a challenge, I think, also for uh, anti-colonial and uh, national liberation movements um, that, you know, there's been a diversity of anti-colonial and, and uh, liberation and uh, national liberation movements in how they've approached this question of basically nationalism and to the extent to which they see some alliance with their ruling class against the U.S. versus seeing the ruling class as their primary first, first and foremost enemy uh, you know, insofar as trying to create a society that actually is, you know, to the benefit of working people around the world in all of these countries. Um, and now that certainly in the 21st century, we're living in a global capitalist world. The, there's only pockets of non-capitalist, uh, I'm excluding China for a moment here, <laughs> and we don't have to figure out what China is exactly. But the point is just that the world is overwhelmingly capitalist. Uh, and so, the confrontation remains, you know, those who are exploited and those who exploit. Uh, and it's within a highly unequal world, obviously. Uh, I don't know. How, how would, how, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm asserting so, I mean, a claim. I, I, but... Yeah, I totally agree with the point that you're making, which is yeah. part of the story, too, about the containment of the global labor movement, which was truly, you know, in the latter part of the 19th century, across much of the 20th century, a transnational movement of worker mm-hmm. solidarity with really thick institutions across borders, mm-hmm. as well as the containment of anti-colonial politics, right. um, is that essentially the lefts across the world, to the extent that they exist, have become trapped by the national borders. They're trapped mm-hmm. within national borders and they're contained within the context of domestic politics. That There's this really sharp divide, perhaps we'll get to this, between domestic mm-hmm. and foreign and it also then reproduces very specific tendencies. It, it essentially helps disappear the background dynamics of global capitalism and how that is infused with dynamics of empire. Mm-hmm. And it transforms most conversations about foreign policy into exchanges just with the national security state. The national right. security state is the relevant actor, and that's who you're in conversation with. Rather than thinking about 
Well, you know, honestly, the security apparatus in the U.S. and the security apparatus even of American foes, let alone allies, have a lot more in common in terms of the way that they're constructed, mm -hmm. their, con their presentation of uh, perceived enemies, their use of counterterrorism tools against domestic dissidents, their linkages within global networks of power. I mean, even think about a country like Iran, which mm -hmm. has been framed very clearly as an American enemy. You know, it's a deeply when we think about it in terms of political economy, and I'm, I'm not an Iran expert, so I might be opening myself up, but I would say <laughs> that, you know, the government wants to be part, it seems like, wants to be part of global networks of capital. It's yeah. not presenting an alternative account of economic organization that would be consistent mm -hmm. with an emancipatory vision. That there's, a, there's all of these continuities that have been shaped. But you're right, like the focus on the nation means that the only way that we think of these relevant conversations is not between communities that are transnational, stitched mm -hmm. by common interest and class experience or anti-colonial experience, but rather by like, you know, nation state objective and grand strategy and rivalry, you know, the, the Henry Kissinger approach to the world. And, you know, this, I think, has real consequences when we think about um, this issue of the lack of transformative agents, agents mm -hmm. when it comes to foreign policy debates, where, yeah. you know, one of the things I think has really been telling about the last year in American foreign policy is that if you think about it, if you just sort of take a step back, not just the last year, the last decade, the U.S. is basically in the security apparatus is lurching from strategic failure to strategic failure. You know, everything from the global financial crisis to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the pullouts to, you know, you name it. Mm -hmm. And yet in the context, for instance, of events in in Ukraine and Russia's imperial invasion of Ukraine, it's really been the left that's been on the defensive mm -hmm. and the left that seemed fractured where, you know, there's been a rallying around effect effectively within the Democratic Party around what the security state says and does. And that even though that security state is then, you know, essentially applying oftentimes a lot of the same basic, you know, policy frameworks that I think are deeply troubling, which is the, the same conventional toolkit of aggressive sanctions, milita militarized confrontation mm -hmm. um, across all of these different settings. It's as if in each circumstance, the only example of what doing something means is tied to that state. And left accounts are the ones that seem really fractured and internally in conflict. And I'd say, you know, not the only reason, but a significant part of this is that the, the, the sort of the, de the destruction and um, pushback against demobilization, effectively, of transnational left institutions, mm -hmm. combined with the containment of lefts within the nation state means that when it comes to foreign policy in particular, foreign policy is generally in the U.S. articulated not by movements, not by mobilized publics, not in the context of power building. It's articulated instead by individuals, whether folks like me, frankly, that are just, you know, academics that don't really have a connection to underlying social movements or various other kinds of activists or journalists that are similarly individuals that are speaking on their own. Mm -hmm. They're not part of, you know, large-scale movement organizations, party infrastructures, um, union infrastructures that have these transnational connections. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it's rarely the case that the individuals that are also talking have any kind of sustained interaction with folks that are on the left in the country where, where wherever the, the, the hotspot is. In other words, the national security states, even the opposed security states, are in continuous conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, Biden, Boris Johnson, Merkel, uh, Zelensky, Putin, they, they're repeat players that are in sustained conversation and so are shaping a specific kind of world where oftentimes whenever there's a perceived crisis for the left contained as it is and framed around individual reactions, it's, it's the first time effectively that left intellectuals that are talking about foreign policy are really in conversation or not frankly in conversation with left um, intellectuals institutions in these other countries. Mm -hmm. And all of that creates a tendency to say, well, then the approach is basically going to be individuals pushing back against just what the U.S. is doing. But also, it's very hard to create something like common frameworks, to, to have spaces where people across these different country and institu- institutional spaces, in other words, you know, transnationally, come together to work through what an alternative would be. Like, what if... You had a genuine left government in the U.S. What should mm-hmm. its response be to a, a, a Russian imperial invasion? Mm-hmm. Like you don't have any of that infrastructure, and all you have instead is sort of individuals that don't, in fact, represent underlying social bases. And that produces a real fracture and, fracture and discord that then feeds into the idea that the national security state's approach is the only relevant approach because it's the only one with the sustained inst- institutions and, like, capacity as an agent to actually intervene. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's your kind of the next question I wanted to get into is directly dealing with this. And and maybe we've already somewhat answered it. But um, this is you bring this up in your piece. We've thought about this, uh, you know, both uh, in the web version of of Jacobin, but also in video, um, where, you know, when we look at the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's something of a tension when we're in our discussions where it seems like on the one hand, we're talking about, you know, what should the U.S. government be doing? How should it handle this situation versus what would be the left's response if it was in power? Um, and obviously those are fairly different. You know, the limitations of uh, you, you take into account, you know, that, you, you know, to what extent can we actually even influence the U.S. government right now in its decisions? And is that really why we're making these interventions? Are we saying you know, we should be pushing for the U.S. government to be doing X, uh, or is it an exercise in understanding, well, if we were in this position, if the U.S. left uh, was in power, uh, how would we handle the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Um, and I think there's something of a tension there, but I think you also address how in, in some ways it's it, there's actually a fairly straightforward way of dealing with that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is this is precisely the balancing act. Mm-hmm. that left domestically has to engage in precisely because of its systematic and historic exclusion from power, mm-hmm. which is to the extent that the national security state's framework is the only one on the table, then that's going to essentially drive conversation. And in order to be able to ensure that that's not the case, or at least begin the process by which that's not the case, you actually have to have credible left alternatives about how you'd exercise state power 
under these particular kinds of circumstances. And so mm -hmm. you need to present a credible alternative, but then highlight, too, how the approach of the security state systematically, time and again, produces deleterious outcomes. So, you know, in the context of Ukraine, my own position is that you, a, a commitment to anti-colonial self-determination means that you have to impose oppose imperial invasion of one country by another. Mm -hmm. And I think that justifies, in, in this context, defensive military assistance. But defensive military assistance that's really combined with a commitment to diplomacy, so de-escalation, mm -hmm. that if you're going to engage in sanctions that are very narrowly targeted against those that are actually engaged in sort of Russian aggression, so opposing broad-ranging sanctions regime that you know proceed through what amounts to collective punishment, and that if you're going to go after Russian oligarchs, again, that has to be a global project, which is an important global project of closing tax havens, uh, attacking oligarchs everywhere rather than just exclusively Russian oligarchs. Mm -hmm. And then all of that has to be tied to a theory of solidarity that's built around not just humanitarian assistance, necessary humanitarian assistance in Ukraine, but also uh, global humanitarian assistance, given the fact that, as the UN Secretary General has said, 1.7 billion people around the world are facing, as a, in partly as a result of the war and the sanctions approach the U.S. is engaged in, uh, crises when it comes to food, mm -hmm. energy, um, finances, and that there's clearly money to be able to provide the kinds of redistributive needs that the that the world currently is struggling with in the context even of these kinds of conflicts. So that you could imagine what a left alternative approach would be that takes seriously principles of anti-imperialism and anti-authoritarianism. That's not what the U.S. is doing. Right. The U.S. is combining, um, you know, a commitment to sort of rejecting Russian aggression but with its geostrategic objectives. And those geostrategic objectives are tied to weakening a global adversary. And that, that that framework is part of why we have the same conveyor belt of policies that are being imposed yet again. You know, wide-ranging and fairly extreme sanctions approach that are having really destructive effects on ordinary people, both in the context of the specific crisis, but then also around the world. Um, that... You know, there's no clear history of these strong sanctions actually producing, generating peaceful outcomes. And then all of that mm -hmm. is tied to really flooding both Europe and the conflict with arms, I think, in ways that promote a kind of militarized intensification that has humanitarian effects for the war. But then if we just take a step back, has real effects for Europe mm -hmm. that, you know, a peaceful Europe in my my view is tied to a demilitarized Europe based on collective security, having instead a European context in which, you know, you have heightened militarization in a setting in which, frankly, Trump could be president in the U.S., Le Pen could be in charge mm -hmm. of France, is a truly dystopian one that seems to ignore the fact that Europe has been facing and the U.S. intense de-democratization too over the last decade. So you could have these hyper-aggressive xenophobic nationalist states all in confrontation with each other um, through a really militarized framework. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, what this means is you have to be able to do both. You have to be able to articulate alternatives, 
but then highlight how the tendency to combine American security state geostrategic objectives and a conveyor belt of policies over the long run repeatedly has produced outcomes that are inconsistent with the, the stated objectives. And that this is not by chance. This is a function of how the geostrategic commitments to primacy and the policies that have gone hand in hand with those end up undermining, frankly, the kind of, you know, alternative, far more pluralistic, far more uh, globally redistributive um, world order that I think folks on the left might want or be committed to. But you have no choice but to do both of these things. And part of the reason why, frankly, it's so hard to do both of these things at once is because it's essentially isolated, going back to the, the previous point, it's essentially isolated individuals. Mm-hmm. And foreign policy, you know, uh, foreign policy elites, experts mm-hmm. that are the ones that are trying to stitch together left analysis rather than sustained conversations across borders among groups and movements with representative bases. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really the foundation for being able to engage in that kind of balancing act. Mm-hmm. So maybe just kind of somewhat to wrap up, or maybe just one last kind of topic to tie all this together. Uh, one of the points that you make in your piece has to do with the fact that in large part, uh, domestic politics seem to be separated from foreign politics, foreign policy, international politics. Um, and in many ways, that's not actually the case. That's why I'm saying it seems like it, or there's the appearance that there's this division, but that the left, uh, maybe more often than not, or more often than it should at least, um, has allowed that separation to be there. And so uh, thinking about, you know, the questions of how we build social democracy in the U.S. for our, you know, American leftists, as you know, for our American audience, and obviously social democracy around the world, maybe if we're lucky, we'll get democratic socialism one day, fingers, you know, crossed, I guess, but, but, you know, minimally building uh, social democracy uh, and, and public goods that provide, you know, take care of people's needs above and beyond uh, the interests of profitability, that that has to be tied with internationalism uh, and anti-militarism uh, and a peaceful foreign policy. Um, and that in many ways, it's not just that, you know, it should be tied, that they are in fact tied um, and that social democracy really truly goes hand in hand with anti-imperialism um in that it's actually you know it's a, it's probably maybe the more the most important question in all this ultimately always is how how do you do that how do you get there rather than just saying it should be um and i think that's actually the more politically viable uh strategy um and and my sense is uh from reading your article is that that's your sense as well so maybe could you talk about uh how do we marry social democracy and uh anti-imperialism uh, in a practical and strategic way. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the first point to note is the one that you made, which is the long story really of uh, center left and, you know, social democratic left politics, mainstream social democratic left politics in the U.S. Uh, since the Cold War has been a separation of foreign and domestic. And I think you can see this as part of a kind of, you know, compromise that the labor movement in particular and the civil rights movement as well engaged in in the mid-20th century. So for the labor movement, you know, many of the benefits of the New Deal settlement 
were organized around the idea that business, labor, and government would work together to ensure something like a, a limited social welfare state at home. But part of the condition really for that was that, you know, labor activists rejected engaging in a kind of general contestation of what the U.S. did abroad, so that you cleaved this, uh, the domestic from the foreign. And there was also, I think, a background set of reasons for, for why. So one had to do with, you know, genuine concerns among many folks in the labor movement with the Soviet Union and the authoritarianism of, of Stalin. I think another reason really did have to do with the fact that, frankly, empire and social democracy in the mid-20th century seemed to go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. That the U.S.'s dollar hegemony, its control over the the global um, financial system, uh, access to foreign markets, all of these things fed domestic prosperity, especially for a white working and middle class. And so it was the case. You could make a plausible argument in the 40s and 50s, that for some portion of the American public, that um, social democracy and American primacy were stitched together. Now, the problem was that over the long run, that the objectives of the security state and their close binding to corporate elites ended up really cutting against global labor protections, the global labor movement in general, created a circumstance in which labor was trapped within borders, but capital was footloose and mobile, mm-hmm. and which ended up generating austerity and miseration elsewhere. And then eventually, you know, came back home where the same kinds of sort of footloose realities of, you know, a capital that can move effortlessly, that has strong property rights protections, that that undermines um, labor protections, you know, systematically destroyed um, the labor movement domestically, and then had pretty profound effects on sustaining not just the institutions of social democracy at home, but also the experience of material largesse and a rising tide. So that by the time we get again to 2022, we're living in a world in which the idea that American primacy is actually promoting domestic wealth for large segments of the American population, not just those that enjoy the benefits really of corporate power is really hard to sustain. Mm -hmm. So that there's a kind of loop here where the plausibility of social democracy and empire fitting together really doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And that highlights how domestic struggles, domestic struggles over political economy, over class, over the potential for social democracy swim within the water of global realities. Mm -hmm. And it therefore requires not just these strong transnational institutions, But it also requires thinking about foreign policy beyond if the U.S. is sending a whole bunch of troops to a place like Iraq Mm -hmm. as actually a site for movement activism and movement organization, that the foreign and the domestic work together. And so it's one of the reasons why in the piece, you know, I think promoting global labor rights, um, decriminalizing the border significantly Uh, cutting back the security budget. Mm -hmm. All of these are good policies, but there are also policies that are essential for the institutional strength of the left at home and abroad and essential for actually making plausible the possibility of building social democracy at home. And I should add, you know, to the extent that this has been a somewhat pessimistic conversation, (laughs) that there are really incipient sites of a kind of international transnational left in the U.S. Mm-hmm. in a way that just wasn't the case 
five years ago, 10 years ago, um, 20 years ago. And you can see this both in the form of sol solidaristic actions that take place even if there aren't these thick institutional in, uh, connections. So one can just think about the role of, of the movement for black lives in emphasizing the connections between racial justice in the U.S. and, for instance, the experience of Palestinians in Israel-Palestine mm -hmm. that transformed, frankly, the conversation about Palestine domestically here and the response in the U.S., even in mainstream media, to, you know, Israel's actions in places like Gaza and the highlighting, for instance, of, you know, the Amnesty International report that mm -hmm. speaks to uh, the treatment of Palestinians as a form of apartheid. I mean, that is all mobilized in part because of emergent transnational, international and social movement thinking. And then mm -hmm. we have incipient sites of institutional connection, like the fact that Bernie Sanders and, um, you know, Varoufakis have been talking about a progressive international and indeed that there's, you know, institutional organizations like the progressive international that are attempting to link um, uh, uh, solidaristic efforts within the U.S. and overseas through unions, through peace movements, through various other forms. It's just that this is incipient and needs to be built. And we're essentially trying to recover a mode of thinking, a mode of politics and a mode of organizing that has been systematically, you know, broken apart over the course of half a century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think tying back to what we were saying earlier, um, I think maybe one way to, to make sense of this is in many ways we think of uh, empire and imperialism and also social democracy in these nationalist terms, in these in the sense that it's the the U.S. is doing this. Sweden is doing this. Sweden has a welfare state uh, or you know the U.S. has an empire. And I think in many ways it's flawed insofar as it kind of strips away the class character of these, that American empire, just like basically every single empire, has had a class character to it. It is a, a ruling class uh, project, uh, you know, expanding and, and spreading empire. In the same way that social democracy was built uh, against the interests and the whims of ruling classes, of capitalists, of businesses and elites. Um, and so in many ways, uh, you know, Vivek Chipper has made this point before, I don't remember exactly where, but that you can see the, the development of the British National Health Service occurring at the same time as the, the collapse of British Empire, that uh, these are not coincidences that actually building the, the British welfare state has a lot to do with, uh, you know, draining the coffers of British Empire. And in, in kind of in a similar way, you make a case in your argument that we should fight for things like Medicare for all, uh, jobs programs, infrastructure programs, uh, in part because it's a means of draining U.S. empire. And that in that way, there is a real material interest in having left internationalism, of working class internationalism, that it's at your expense as a worker that we have as a country, the U.S. has, uh, and again, I'm, I'm deviating from what I'm already saying, from the, the American military's efforts abroad, that that happens at your expense and then instead, we should all have health care. Every single person in the world should have health care as a human right. Yeah. Can I can I just um, so I I completely agree, mm -hmm. but I do want to make one caveat sure. that's specific to the American experience. And so this is, in a way, the argument that I um, that I developed in my first book, The Two Faces of American Freedom, that it's it's still really important to appreciate a difference between, for example, the British Empire 
and the versions of American imperial power that we've seen. And that's mm-hmm. tied to the fact that the U.S. is historically was grounded as a settler colonial project. Mm-hmm. And the reason why this is significant is because as a matter of both ideas and institutions, that a really thick internal account of economic independence, political freedom was grounded in the expropriation of indigenous land and the coercive use of dependent uh, non-settler labor, in particular enslaved black labor. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, through large chunks of American history, this is one way of talking in general, truly general terms about the 18th and 19th century, a version of, if not social democracy, economic populism was tied to empire. It's mm-hmm. a way of thinking about somebody like um, Thomas Jefferson or Andrew Jackson, that the kind of high tides of economic populism were also high tides of what amount to a, a white populism that was racially organized and grounded in territorial conquest and indigenous expropriation. Mm-hmm. It is noteworthy that the the significant period where you have an internationalist left that's housed within um, you know white white politics that's attempting to connect social democracy with anti-imperialism is the late 19th and the early 20th century, which is a period in which that settler project is breaking down as a way of actually providing material benefits mm-hmm. to um, to most Americans. And what ended up being reconstituted was an account of global primacy and global power. Mm-hmm. And again, in the mid-20th century, in ways that are kind of consistent with the story of settler colonialism, you could make an argument that social democracy, again, was stitched to empire, but now to the idea of the U.S. as enjoying this international police power, the right to intervene everywhere, and that was backstopped by its own economic and military authority. And now, 2022 were basically witnessed the collapse of that stitching of social democracy and empire. And we have another opportunity. This is another moment to think seriously about whether or not social democracy, democratic socialism can be combined to anti-imperial principles. Mm -hmm. The thing that makes this tough in the U.S. is we don't really have successful historical models of these things fitting together. Mm -hmm. We have very powerful social movements in the past that conceived of their necessity for their long-term durability. And those are the resources that we can draw on, as well as the fact that the current order cannot persist as it is. That we're moving toward both domestically and globally, you know, a set of potentially really dystopian outcomes where you have dysfunctional institutions and power that's untethered from law or legitimating ideology. Mm-hmm. And that the only response, both at home and abroad, is to forthrightly conceive of how an anti-imperialism can be bound to social democracy in ways that think of the global commons as a repository for all and of domestic American politics as a site for liberation. Yeah. I'm not sure if we're ending on an optimistic note. It kind of is, but it's also kind of not. So maybe it's something... Uh, somewhere in between. But I, I think it's a very sober and, and useful note. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time, for many, many insights. This is a long conversation. I hope people enjoyed it. Um, again, Aziz Rana is a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute and professor of law at Cornell University. His first book, as you mentioned, is The Two Faces of American Freedom. 
and uh, be on the lookout for his next book, uh, which, as I mentioned, deals with just our awful constitution and uh, and its historic veneration. So thank you again, Aziz, uh, and I uh, hope to speak to you again soon. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.